Welcome to the Deep Sea Dive, where we explore deconstruction for ex-evangelical escapees of purity culture, along with all manner of other topics related to conservative American Christianity, religious trauma, purity culture, and feminism, progressivism, etc. I'm your host, Snorkel. Please keep in mind that this is an inclusive space. We do not judge anyone based on sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, age, class, religion, or lack thereof, or anything else. Trigger warning, this episode will include discussions of body shaming, transphobia, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, and religious trauma. Well, divers, welcome back for Chapter 2 of Raising Maidens of Virtue, a study of feminine loveliness for mothers and daughters by Stacey McDonald. Last week we covered the ham-fisted metaphor of flowers versus rocks, and I made the mistake of thinking it wouldn't get worse than that. Apparently I remembered wrong. This book gets infinitely worse. But in my defense, this is only my third time reading it, as I read it once when I was, I think, 12 or 13, and I did my best to block out the cringy memories, and then once more to do those old Reddit reviews about four years ago, and now this time. And I'm just reading one chapter at a time as I write these scripts for these episodes to make sure everything is fresh in my mind and that I stay on topic. Yay ADHD! So we are absolutely on this abyssal journey together. I share in your suffering. Maybe one day we can all make a drinking game out of this, but probably not because we'll likely just die of alcohol poisoning. In any event, we're back for chapter two. Fortunately, this chapter is free from far-fetched botanical allegory, but unfortunately, it's full of freaking fundamentalist, fucking crazy misogyny, infantilization, sexualization, false piety, judgment, and vanity. I hate it here. Why did I do this again? But okay. The only way out of this is through it, so here we go. Buckle up, divers. It's going to be a long one. Chapter 2 of this sick, sick book is called Modern Day Maidens, and it actually starts with a paragraph that I not only don't hate, but also actually agree with, because it's all about old books. Old books and how nice they are and how they only get better and better with age and they have this timeless beauty and just some kind of intangible quality that makes them amazing and unique, and now I really want to go and smell some old books. And then the author, Stacy, segues right into some creepy shit that just absolutely did not happen. And if it somehow did, then she's even more of a judgmental bitch than I thought. And believe me, my opinion of her, given the things I've already read, was so low you'd find a balrog on the way down to it. She tells this weird anecdote about going to a used bookstore and finding a really old, leather-bound, dusty book. It's specifically described as being leather, but also has a picture painted directly on the front cover and it's also gilded. I obviously am not an authority on old books, but having been to more than my fair share of antique bookstores, I can say that I have never found a gilded leather book with a portrait painted directly on it. I could be wrong, but I don't know that that's even a thing. Anyway, the focus of this painting is, quote, a young maiden seated upon a blanket, sewing. Her strawberry curls were tied gently behind her back, and her delicately embroidered gown cascaded about her, unquote. If such a book really exists, Stacy must be either completely stupid or ignorant or deliberately lying to us if this is her idea of what an old-timey maiden actually was. This weird obsession with the past, particularly the Victorian era, is a feature common to fundies and secular people alike, although it usually also has a hefty dose of white supremacy and rose-colored nostalgic glasses thrown in. Because for the vast majority of people living in these times, life wasn't a picturesque storybook. Only daughters of the upper middle class or wealthy would ever be able to spend time sitting on a picnic blanket outside in a fancy dress sewing instead of doing something more useful. Most girls, 
even maidens, were busy either helping their exhausted, overworked mothers look after the house and younger siblings, and or working a laborious, often dangerous job outside of the home to help their families keep everyone housed and fed. This super-idealized, privileged view of the past is dangerous and wrong, and Stacy seems to have just embraced it completely. Also, can someone please explain to me how you're supposed to tie your hair gently behind your back? What is a gentle hairdo? Anyone? Bueller? It gets creepier, because at first Stacy expresses a longing to blue-skidoo her way into the picture to spend time with this girl, an unnamed, likely fictional child, because she's just so peaceful and beautiful and enchanting. Ew. But then Stacy pivots to start asking the real questions, namely, why is this Victorian girl not wearing skin-tight clothing and showing off her midriff, and why isn't she playing a video game instead of sewing? Gee, Stacy, I don't know. Maybe because this is a very old book written before that kind of fashion and entertainment was even invented? That might have something to do with it. She then asks if any maidens like this exist today. No, they barely existed back then. See above. The next section is titled Damsels in Distress, which I certainly find distressing, but it's not actually about that. It's about the terminology of the word maiden and how it should be a synonym for the word virgin. Apparently, if you ever read an old book, quote, Young unmarried women are referred to as virgins, daughters, maidens, and even damsels, unquote. She then goes on to explain how virgin used to just mean an unmarried girl or woman, and how the status of her hymen was never even called into question, because anyone, any female, that is, who had never been married was automatically assumed to be sexually untouched. I don't know that this is actually true, and I feel like I would need to do a lot more research into the etymology. Just from a basic internet search, though, I found that the word virgin comes from the Latin for an unmarried woman who has never had sexual intercourse. So bam, Stacy, the sexual status was always a part of it. Suck it. And I just have a major problem with this entire argument. Stacy goes on a rant about how nowadays the word virgin has improper sexual connotations, except it always had those sexual connotations. And she's big mad that some people find it inappropriate to discuss their children's sexual activity or lack thereof. Quote, we certainly would not want to refer to our daughters in a way that would stir up improper thoughts of the state of their sexuality, unquote. Except that's exactly what putting the virgin label on every unmarried girl does. You can't have it both ways. Either girls need to be super modest and pure and never ever even accidentally inspire lust in anyone other than their husband after their wedding day, or we need to slap a sign on every sexually inexperienced girl that says, Greetings. I am a virginal, untouched maiden. My hymen is extremely intact. I've never even used a tampon. Which literally forces everyone around them to at least briefly and involuntarily think about their vagina. I don't know about you, but I think advertising the status of children's genitals is creepy and disgusting and wrong. And a better example of grooming than just, I don't know, trans people existing in public and being able to use the bathroom in peace. I'd trust any trans person or drag queen with a child over this goofy, creepy woman any day of the week and twice on Sunday. So yeah, Stacy's big beef is that not enough people are addressing immodesty and virginity because those topics can be awkward. And she's partially right, those topics can be awkward, if it's all you ever harp on about and you obsess over it. There's nothing wrong or shameful about choosing to dress modestly or being a virgin. But Stacy's obsession with making sure every unmarried Christian girl is advertised as a virgin, a maiden, a sexually untouched future bride ripe for the picking, is extremely disturbing. 
What's more immodest, wearing jeans or telling people all about your vagina? Wearing a crop top or shoving your sexual status and experience in everyone's faces? Quick aside, in case anyone needs a reminder, virginity is a concept and not a physical state of being. If you have a vagina, then you do not have to have your hymen broken to be considered a non-virgin, and you can still be a virgin even if your hymen is broken. The hymen has nothing to do with virginity. Plenty of people assigned female at birth are simply not born with one, and often it can break through stretching, sports, etc. Never having had something in your vagina is a patriarchal, male-centered, antiquated view of virginity. You're a virgin until you decide to have sex with someone, period. We then get Stacy's definition of the word chastity, and she tells us that all women are to be chaste. Funny how she never mentions men. Anyway, whether you're a virginal maiden or a married woman, you're supposed to be chaste, which is different than being celibate. It's about being pure in everything you do, which would be fine if so many religious people didn't define pure to mean non-sexual. In my opinion, pure should reflect something good, with the best intentions for the well-being of everyone involved displaying kindness and love and consideration. And honestly, that would have made a much better lesson than this crash course in crappy contradictions. The next mini-fit she throws is because people refer to human offspring of all genders as, quote, kids, children, teens, or youth, unquote. And apparently that's just woefully unacceptable. You're giving in to the modern, sinful, gender-neutral culture unless you refer to all female children as virgins or maidens, because again, she's obsessed with making sure everyone is forced to think about the status of children's genitals. I'm sensing a theme here, with fundamentalists and conservative Christians and conservatives in general. It's almost like they've been projecting all along, and they were always the real groomers and perverts. And this book was written in 2004. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for a very long time, at least since Bill Gothard, the sick freak, started his IBLP nonsense way back when. And honestly, it goes back farther than that. The widespread abuse of children and other vulnerable people by religious institutions has been happening as long as there have been religious institutions. And before anyone even tries to be all, oh, you just hate all Christians, no dipshits, I do not. I myself am a progressive Christian. What I hate are creepy, abusive, power-hungry men creating cults to groom the perfect victim so that they can have an unending supply of power and people to hurt. If you think that's what all of Christianity stands for, you're the problem, not me. But I digress. In addition to such gender-neutral terms as children and youth, Stacy is absolutely aghast to hear that boys sometimes call girls things like, quote, chicks, babes, or even hotties, unquote. She then demands that fathers and brothers grab their shotguns to defend their maiden's honor. Got that? Shotguns. And yeah, can it be insulting to be catcalled or reduced to your appearance? Absolutely. But Stacy's solution isn't to teach young men how to respect other people or to dismantle the patriarchal notions that women exist for the male gaze. No. She wants to go straight to violence. Because if there's one thing this country needs more of, it's angry men with guns. Quote, The Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines the word maiden as a young unmarried woman, a virgin, fresh, new, unused, unquote. Which, ew, unused? Fresh? Tell me you think girls and women are objects without telling me you think girls and women are objects. What a disgusting take. And this is just another example of the problems with purity culture. How can you tell a girl that she is nothing but an object to be used or consumed, 
that she exists to serve men for men's pleasure and that her value lies in sexual purity. How can you say all of that and then expect her to go from zero to a thousand after her wedding to deal with the cognitive dissonance of being used and feeling like she's now tarnished and dirty? You can quack all you want about your hot and spicy godly married sex, but those issues are still there. These people are sending girls into their marriages like lambs to the slaughter, and it causes very real emotional and even physical harm. To say nothing of cases where a girl might be sexually assaulted before she's married. What's she supposed to think of herself, then? You tell her she's worthless if she's not 100% unused. How do you expect her to then be able to go to anyone for help? Purity culture is how you end up with horrible, tragic cases like that of Elizabeth Smart. When she was abducted and raped, she didn't even try to escape because she had been taught that she was worthless and good for nothing if she wasn't a virgin. Even though that choice was ripped away from her, she had been taught that it didn't matter. The arbitrary status was the only valuable thing about her. How unfathomably sad. And there are countless more victims who will never even come forward, who suffer in silence due to these toxic teachings, and that's just heartbreaking. It's evil. Far more evil than allowing your daughter to wear pants or makeup or hold hands with a boy. In the next section, titled Making a Purity Statement, we at least get lip service to the idea that men and women are equally called to purity. But again, I would offer a different definition of purity, one more in line with the teachings of Jesus. You know, Jesus, the homeless, brown, itinerant preacher who subverted the social and religious status quo and trash-talked hypocrites and greedy fuckers, the one these people claim to follow. A definition where purity of heart means caring the most about how you affect other people and how you can do your best for the good of everyone around you. Being motivated by love, kindness, mercy, and the genuine desire to do what is right. The world would be a much better place if people could just do that instead of hyper-focusing on what everyone else has going on in their pants and in their bedrooms. And if pigs had wings, they'd fly, right? And it's actually sad that I'm even minimally impressed by this one tacked-on section where Stacy barely even is like, oh yeah, and boys should probably also stay pure too. I get that this book is primarily written, although I do use that term lightly in this instance, for a female audience, particularly mothers and daughters. But having read more books about purity culture than anyone has a right to, I can honestly say the difference between the books for girls and the books for boys is day and night. Girls are always encouraged to be meek, dainty, submissive, malleable, quiet, demure, chaste, pure, modest, and above all else, careful to never, ever, ever incite even the smallest bit of lust in anyone else. Their entire existence is framed as a temptation to every male around them, even their pastors, even their brothers even their fathers, and all the responsibility for men's potential sexual sin and every other kind of sin because the root cause of men sinning is women not knowing their place, don't you know, is placed on adolescent girls. Meanwhile, the boys' books are all, oh, just go forth into the mountain and listen to the hero within. That's only a slight exaggeration. In all truth, it's really like 60% the make a man out of you song from Mulan and a 40% warning about how Oh, you're an animal who will only ever think of sex and crave sex, but when you get married, you have to at least try to take out the trash or something to keep the little wife happy. Otherwise, she won't put out. This section of Raising Maidens of Virtue is not really better. Stacy says sons should remain pure, yeah, but, quote, Daughters are to be protected, remaining under the authority of their fathers, untouched until the moment in which they are delivered, spotless and pure, to their husbands on their wedding day. Unquote. Ew. 
The utter dehumanization in this passage seriously makes me gag. First of all, you have the standard umbrella of authority bullshit that so many of us know and loathe, where fathers basically own their daughters until the wedding, when their husbands become their new owners, and it is so dehumanizing. People aren't property. People aren't objects to be traded or used. She's your daughter, not a Pokemon. The following sentence, quote, Likewise, for those of us with sons, what a blessing it will be to offer a groom pure, strong, and honorable to his bride on that special day, unquote. No transfer of authority, no objectification, no hoarding him like he's some dragon's treasure. Just, wouldn't it be nice if he too was pure? But all the emphasis is on him acquiring ownership of his new plaything, and it's disgusting. Stacy then pretends that modern girls are ashamed and embarrassed of virginity, which I don't really think was a problem in 2004, but even if it was, it's becoming less and less of a problem now. Especially in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, more and more people assigned female at birth are making the decision to wait to become sexually active, or to not become sexually active, or to not be sexually active with men. And that's an understandable choice. And at times there has been a certain stigma connected to being a virgin, but if anything, it seems to be more geared towards boys. Boys who are virgins are weird or incels, but girls who aren't virgins are tramps and sluts and whores. With the astronomical and horrifying growth of men's right activists and the red pill culture, more and more men are viewing women as worthless if they aren't virgins, but also saying men shouldn't be virgins, which begs the question, who are these men supposed to have sex with? If being a male virgin is shameful, but women shouldn't have sex, I'm just saying, maybe we should not define people's worth based on their sexual status. Stacy thinks that modern girls try on purpose to look as anti-virginal as possible, not realizing that much of individual expression isn't motivated by sex. Seriously, the culture is not one-tenth as obsessed with sex as fundamentalists and evangelicals. True, many fashion trends are designed to cater to the male gaze, but that's not Stacy's argument here. She still wants women to cater to the male gaze, but a very specific male gaze that leaves no room for experimentation, individual choices, expression, or fun. According to Stacy, all improper maidens are running around in see-through clothes with a myriad of body piercings and harlot makeup. And this is very inconsiderate of them, because it definitely will cause their brothers in Christ to stumble. First of all, I find it deeply creepy that these girls are taught to simultaneously view every unmarried man they encounter as both their brother and their potential future husband. Talk about emotional incest. Later in this book, I think there's a part that says that you should treat all men as if they're your actual brother in order to remain chaste enough, and that's really squicky. Because odds are, you're going to be forced to marry one of them, and the last thing you want to think of your husband as is your brother. Second, the issue of modesty is addressed in the Bible, but not in terms of skirt length or cleavage. When it's specifically mentioned, it's in the context of not flaunting your wealth and making a spectacle of yourself. And Jesus didn't mention it at all, instead saying that if anyone has a lusting problem, they should pluck out their own eye. Zero blame on the object of their lust. Something, something, personal responsibility, am I right? But being modest is more important than just protecting your brothers slash future husbands, because everyone you end up not marrying is someone else's future husband. And if you cause him to stumble, you not only sin, but you make him sin, and you ruin his entire future and his future wife's life. 
dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow. And I guess heaven forbid men just be taught to not leer at everyone they see. Stacy pretends to care about men being responsible for literally a sentence, and then goes back to saying how, quote, a virtuous maiden does not make it difficult for him, unquote. That means no jeans, makeup, belly button rings. She's weirdly obsessed with belly button rings. It's her go-to example for non-maidens. The next several paragraphs are devoted to Stacy bemoaning the fact that sex sells. Is that a problem? Sure. Should we stop objectifying and sexualizing people just to make a buck? Yeah. But instead of saying anything constructive on this, she just whines about, drumroll please, a bottle of hairspray. Oh yes, I'm not kidding. She gets incredibly upset about a literal bottle of hairspray, one that she herself bought for her then 18-year-old daughter. I'm assuming the daughter is either a total goody-two-shoes suck-up or completely brainwashed, or this story didn't even actually happen. But according to Stacy, when her daughter went to use said hairspray, she was aghast and scandalized beyond all reason because the back of the hairspray promised, quote, big, sexy, rock and roll hair, unquote. You got that? Both of these grown women are besides themselves over the word sexy appearing on the back of a can of hairspray. How do these people function? If they're so busy being judgmental creeps and throwing hissy fits over every tiny little thing, how do they ever get anything useful done? In light of this ludicrous language, Stacy decided to take the hairspray back to the store, where she then berates the sales lady and imagines that said sales lady is being rude and judgmental because these people love their persecution fetish. Never mind that just because the bottle says big sexy rock and roll hair, it doesn't mean your hair will automatically become big or sexy or rock and roll after one spray of the product. I mean, I wish. The hairspray isn't that magical. This just screams virtue signaling and false piety. I thought it was crazy when I read it as a kid, and I think it's even more crazy now. It's hairspray. This unbelievable, holier-than-thou tone carries through the entire book. Stacy calls all girls and women who don't adhere to her stupid standards strumpets and harlots. Way to slut-shame people for things like jeans and hairspray. Whatever happened to those verses about how God looks at the heart? I guess that's not as important as making sure you look like a demure Victorian waif. The next sections, again, pretend to care about this while giving exactly zero information on what that means and still focusing on outward appearance only. Quote, A young godly maiden considers her demeanor, making sure her deportment declares feminine wholesomeness as opposed to genderless sloppiness or sensual tarnish. Unquote. But her idea of femininity is contradictory. You're supposed to be covered up and modest, and not even show the outline of your body. But you're also supposed to be beautiful and put together and obviously feminine. You have to be beautiful, but not so beautiful that anyone will lust after you. You have to hide, but not so much that men stop thinking of you as a potential future bride. What's the solution? To wear a shapeless, pink, frilly sack? Or perhaps a red cloak and a white bonnet? Stacy then makes the disgusting claim that girls underage girls, are supposed to advertise their virginity wherever they go. Quote, It is a Christian daughter's duty to reflect purity, literally. She has an obligation to be a symbol of virginity when she walks into a room. Unquote. Um, no. Nobody should be focusing on the status of your genitals when you walk into a room. 
For all their talk about the LGBTQ plus community supposedly shoving sexuality down their throats, fundies sure love to shovel their sexuality and the sexuality of children down everyone's throats. Like I said before, it is beyond disgusting to insinuate that the first thing anyone should think of when they say a young girl is, gee, I wonder if she's ever had sex. That's predatory. And this isn't just me taking things out of context. Stacy said it before and she says it again now. She makes a point to repeat this and clarify that yes, it is exactly what she means. She truly believes that anytime a young girl walks into a room, the first noticeable thing about her should be that she has never had sex. How is that supposed to be modest? The remainder of the chapter is filled with the discussion questions. And by discussion questions, I mean ways you can become a hypocritical, shallow, judgmental harpy just like Stacy. The first couple questions are goofy, multiple-choice questions about what you might think of any girl who is dressed, quote, in boyish clothing or carries herself in a masculine way, unquote. The options are basically, oh, she's probably a Christian, or is that a boy or a girl, or I wouldn't want to make her mad. This is so gross. On top of being uber judgy, this is also just transphobic as fuck and really dehumanizing. Is that a boy or a girl? What kind of a question is that? What kind of a message is this sending about how we should think of other people and treat them? The second question is similar, asking the reader what they might think of a girl who is dressed immodestly. Again, the options are, she's probably a Christian, or she must have no self-respect, or I should go after her and tell her that I can see her underwear because that's less embarrassing than, I don't know, leaving her the fuck alone. Thirdly, it asks what you might think about a girl who is, quote, dressed modestly, in a neat and clean dress, and speaking in a gentle, respectful, and kind way, unquote. I love how we aren't given the multiple choice answers this time, almost as much as I love how this question gives extra context to make it seem like the more appealing way to be. Like, according to this book, there is obviously a right answer and a right choice, and it's the one that seems the most patriarchal and gender-conforming. The rest of the questions are just more nonsense about how to make sure people can tell you're a girl even from a distance, because gee, it sure would suck to be misgendered. Maybe Christians should stop being so transphobic and misgendering people, Stacy. She also asks the difference between being tough and being strong. She doesn't give us any more cherry-picked definitions, though she does make it clear that good girls should never aspire to be perceived as tough. Also, we have a question about whether or not we are happy with the way others perceive us and how we reflect on our fathers first and family second and God third, which seems idolatrous, but whatever. These people make idols out of sexuality and patriarchy all the time, so I'm not even surprised. Finally, we are asked to think of some practical ways we can make our own purity statement. I'm guessing the correct answer is to be as vain, self-obsessed, self-conscious, judgmental, and pious as possible. And that's the end of the chapter. I think the number one thing that struck me from this one was the sheer amount of Olympic caliber mental gymnastics needed to require modesty, but also require girls to advertise what has or hasn't been up in their business. Forcing people to imagine a child's sexuality is about as predatory and immodest as you can get, but sadly, it's on par for this kind of book and for purity culture as a whole. Girls and women are really shoved into this Madonna-whore dichotomy, where we are simultaneously supposed to be pure, virginal, modest, chaste, and also ultra-feminine, attractive, and breedable. Purity culture 
even in the secular world, but so, so much more within conservative religious circles, reduces anyone assigned female at birth to an object. First, an object for men to desire, and then an object for men to use. We're the temptation and the prize, the trial and the reward. We aren't supposed to be sexual, but we're also supposed to be so sexual that anyone can glance at us and know all about our sexuality. We have to be a blank slate, and then as soon as we say I do, we have to flip a switch and become usable for whichever man now gets to own us. It's an extremely dismal view of half of humanity, and it's a very real problem. Even when not encountered in these extremes, this misogynistic outlook serves to devalue women and prop up men. And it's all an artificial construct. People have tried to justify it for millennia by twisting science, religion, social norms, and personal opinions, but that doesn't make it right or correct. It's a system ultimately designed by men to benefit men, but it often uses religion to trick women into supporting it even against their own best interests. Case in point, Stacy. Maybe she's actually happy being a bang made to her headship and giving herself the vapors over a label of a hair product. Or maybe she's secretly miserable. Whatever the truth may be, this book that she's written is disgusting, harmful, and only serves to perpetuate this idolatrous idea that men are superior and women are objects. And I know my outlook might vary from yours. I know I'm looking at this through the lens of my own beliefs, but I truly do not think the Bible condones this message or this ideology. But that's a subject for another series. The next chapter is titled A Noble Calling, and it's really short and honestly weird. To be fair, this whole book is weird, but this next chapter is weird in less of a creepy, pervy way and more of a general, what the fuck did I even just read way. Tune in next week to hear what it's about. Until then, thanks as always for listening. If you liked this episode, please recommend this podcast to a friend or arch nemesis or whatever. Don't forget to follow so you can be alerted when new episodes drop, or just be on the lookout every Sunday night. If you want to talk about anything I've covered or suggest other topics or just share your experience with purity culture or fundamentalism, please comment or you can find me on Reddit as u forward slash the real snorkel or the podcast subreddit r forward slash deep underscore c underscore dive. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next week, divers.